Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Continuing our discussion about diet and nutrition, we have a question we need to ask. Is there a best diet to follow? I've heard so many people say that their diet is the best, but everyone seems to have a different best. So, what is the best diet to follow? Answering that question is fraught with untold difficulties. Because, as you might guess, if you ask 100 different professionals, you'll get, most likely, 100 different answers. As many will relay the idea about being best based off of their personal beliefs more than what the scientific consensus says. As such, it's very difficult to have an honest conversation about best diet. Acknowledging that I have my own personal biases about diets, based on my personal beliefs, this will instead look at what might make a good diet, as opposed to what might be a best diet. When we look at diets and we look at what might be a best diet, there's a few things that we must remember. When we talk about diets and we talk about what is best, we tend to think about food pyramids or in the case of more recent advances, the food plate, as it being laws. But we have to remember is that there's no laws when it comes to diets and best diets. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we're making good food choices. We've got to remember is that there's no quote unquote magic diet out there. That we have to remember that we need to make sure that we're meeting our minimums as we've discussed previously. Along with this, there is a host of diets that come out from these bests, which includes things like the Atkins style diet, the low or very low carbohydrate diet, the bland diet, the carbohydrate loading diet, the caveman diet, the liquid diet, the detox diet, the diabetic low glycemic diet, the low fat diet, the full liquid diet, the low fat diet, the low potassium diet, the low residual fiber diet, the low sodium or the dash diet, the Mediterranean diet, the plant rich vegetarian or vegan diets, the proportionality diets or the zone diet as sometimes it's referenced and the raw food diet just to name a few. The problem is, is that very few of these diet examples actually have scientific evidence to support their use as being quote unquote best. And some of them are only good within distinct populations and within distinct groups, such as athletes following a carbohydrate loading diet, people who have high blood pressure due to excessive sensitivity to salt following a low sodium diet, People with metabolic syndrome following a low glycemic or a diabetic diet, having a change in health status due to their new diet. So before we get into what's going to make for good diets, let's take a couple of seconds here to look at a few terms that are important to understand. In the terms that we want to look at here, we've talked about previously, and that includes diet and calorie. A diet is simply the food that you are eating. It's not a restriction of food, even, that's, even if that's how we tend to talk about it. Meaning that when we discuss diets, it's not about discussing what we restrict from our diet or cut from our diet, but it's about the total amount of nutrients that we're consuming on a daily basis. The other term that we want to make sure we have a good term definition on is the term calorie. In this case here, we're talking about the dietary calorie. 
And the dietary calorie is the amount of heat that comes out of chemical reactions that's going to elevate one liter of water, one degree centigrade. A lot of people talk about diet and dietary calories as burning calories, particularly look at it in terms of the activities and exercise we do today. But we have to remember is that the calorie is a unit of energy. And because it's a unit of energy, it's something that cannot be burned. When we talk about calorie as it relates to diet, what we're really doing is looking at the amount of potential energy that we can get from the foods that we're consuming so as to replace the energy that we're using in everyday activities. Coming from the idea of calories is the idea of needing to replace the energy being used with food being consumed. And we tend to use an estimated value for this. We will plug in our weight and our height and our age and our level of activity into a number of computer programs, or for those of us that like to do the math, into the actual math formula, and we'll get a number. And that number will say, oh, this is the amount of energy that you use on a daily basis. And within that value, we have to somehow determine how balanced is the energy that is coming into my body to the energy that I'm using or heat that I'm producing from the activities that I do on a daily basis. The estimate can come from any host of equations that we have. But the problem is, is that even with the variety of equations that we have to determine the balance point, there are a number of issues that come out from using these equations, which includes the difficulty in providing an absolute value, a single number. We tend to look at these values coming out as having a range of numbers. The inability to take into account differences that might occur between people based off of their heritage or their gender. There's a lot of the equations that we use which were developed based off of a specific type of population, which we've talked about previously. And it doesn't generalize to all populations that we have with, with, within the human population. What we can do is from this, we tend to look at a balance point for calories based off of what I'm using versus what I'm taking in. And we can use this balance point to help develop the macronutrients that we need in our diet, our carbohydrates, our proteins, and our lipids based off of how much energy, how many calories can I get from each gram of that substance that I'm consuming. Where for carbohydrates and our proteins, we get four calories per gram of those. So four calories per gram of carbohydrates or four calories per gram of proteins. For lipids, we get about nine calories per gram. That estimated range allows us to determine, okay, what is going to be my fuel intake to my fuel expenditure? That is, what am I going to be taking in in terms of carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins? And then what am I going to be using those carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins as it relates to my energy demand? But the problem is, is that not everything that we consume goes to energy. It's not about energy demand. It's about nutrient demand. I'm using nutrients not just for 
the energy that I have to expend in a day, but also for making sure I'm building all the things that my body needs, which takes us to the idea of the nutrient balance. And the nutrient balance is going to relate to the, to the macromolecules that we need, the carbohydrates, the lipids, the proteins, the nucleic acids, the vitamins, the minerals, all of the stuff that we need in order for our cells to build what the cells need to build in order for our body to stay healthy. And just like our energy balance issues, it's going to have a host of factors that are going to influence, such as my age, my gender. What is my goal for body composition and altering my body composition? What types of exercise am I performing? And what is the energetic demand and balance that I have? Because if I am not meeting my fuel needs from intake, I'm going to have to get those fuels from somewhere in my body. And I'm going to break down the tissues in my body to get those fuels that I'm going to need. And so the nutrient balance can be seen as more important than the energy balance when we start to develop the good diet that we need in order to achieve the body weight we want to achieve, maintain the health we want to maintain, and our overall body metabolism that's going to allow us to keep the body weight that we want and maintain the, the health that we want to maintain. The general idea is to develop an individually tailored plan that's going to meet my me metabolic demands. That concept is based on the idea that eating correctly is essential for good health and optimal performance based off of my needs for the nutrients that are necessary for my optimal performance that can be different from someone else's optimal performance. An idea that goes to the ideal that you can only use the molecules in metabolism that are available from what you have eaten or available from tissues being broken down by the body to meet the demands. And the availability that we have is going to directly impact my metabolism and my overall performance, which can influence things like my muscle strength, my muscle endurance, my cardiovascular endurance, my immune response to stress, my neurological functions and my cognitive functions, my ability to think and have my nervous system work correctly. It can also influence my ability to be metabolically flexible, which is important for overall metabolic health and health in general. These demands allow me to establish guidelines for consuming macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, as well as vitamins and minerals to provide the amount needed relative to my body mass or the amount needed relative to the percent of total caloric intake for a day. When we look at these macronutrients and we look at the vitamins and minerals, we're going to look at it based off of body mass as opposed to looking at based off of percent of caloric intake. Mainly because we can't give vitamin and mineral numbers based off of energetic use. So to keep consistent, we're going to take a look at everything within the diet to make a good diet based off of the amount necessary per kilogram of body mass. Now, for those of us that don't like using kilograms of body mass, the easy way that we can go ahead and convert some of these numbers 
is to simply look at the numbers I'm giving and to double it. Very simple math here. It's not quite as accurate as using the correct conversion, but doubling is a very easy number to, to reach by doing some mental math, math in your head. For carbohydrates, we can say that a person who has an appropriate level of fitness within the fitness and fatness continuum and is relatively active, but not athletically active or highly active, should consume somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 to 3.5 grams per kilogram of body mass per day. For those who are highly active and for those who, who are athletic, that number should raise to between five and 10 grams per kilogram of body mass per day. Within that range, you wanna make sure you get 120 grams per day of carbohydrates, in particular of sugar, in order to maintain normal neurological functions. If you are extremely active and or are doing a lot of endurance activity, you need to make sure you replenish your glycogen stores. And this can be done by consuming between 0.8 and 1.0 grams per kilogram of body mass per hour in order to restore glycogen that might be used during activities. For those of you that are away from the fitness side and more towards the fatness side within the fitness and fatness continuum, research has indicated that low carbohydrate diets where you're consuming between 50 and 110 grams per day are safe and are optimal for weight loss and weight maintenance as long as you are consuming proteins in slightly higher ranges than what we will talk about. Regardless of what your weight goal might be or what your health goal might be, there's an additional carbohydrate that needs to be consumed within the diet, and that's fiber. And fiber needs to be consumed in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 grams per day, regardless of what your body mass happens to be. Understanding the necessity for these ranges is important, but there are secondary aspects to consuming carbohydrates that need to be included when you are establishing your good diet. It's important to understand the type and amount of carbohydrates being consumed will impact hormone and metabolic responses in the body after eating. The major hormone discussed related to carbohydrates is of course insulin. Insulin is only gonna be involved with the carbohydrates in the diets, in particular glucose in the diet. When we look at consumption of glucose that is greater than one to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body mass per hour within a meal. Insulin is important in getting glucose from the blood into cells by activating a glucose transporter, a molecule within the cell membrane that's going to pull glucose from the bloodstream into the cells, but it's only going to be involved with three distinct types of cells, skeletal muscle, adipose cells, and liver cells. There's a whole bunch of other cells in the body that aren't going to be involved with insulin in getting glucose into them. In particular, those neurons that we talked about needing those 120 grams per day. Now, there are other carbohydrates that we will consume that would be able to move into cells without needing insulin. 
if we look at the carbohydrates, the sugars within the table sugar that we normally think about when we think about sugar, sucrose, we have two parts of that. One part is what's referred to as glucose. And that's what we usually talk about when we talk about insulin response. The other is fructose. Fructose is a carbohydrate that we need to be careful how much we consume. Overconsuming fructose can promote lipid synthesis, making of lipids, without needing any type of other hormone signals. High carbohydrate diets tend to lead to increased insulin circulation. The increased insulin circulation will promote two molecules in particular to be built following the consumption of a high carbohydrate meal. Glycogen, particularly within skeletal muscle and within the liver cells, and lipids, fats, within adipose, the liver, as well as skeletal muscle. If I consume a large amount of carbohydrates that has both glucose and fructose, fructose will trigger lipid production independent of the insulin signaling within the adipose cells. And that's gonna to lead to a, a fat accumulation that we can see with excessive consumption of carbohydrates in the diet that are not being used for other metabolic purposes. Moving on to proteins in the diet. It gets a little bit more complex than what we look at when we look at carbohydrates. And that's because there are some parts of the proteins, what we call amino acids, that we need to get from our diet. And these are what's referred to as the essential amino acids. And we call them essential because we, we are either unable to produce enough of them or we are unable to produce them at all. The ones that we cannot produce include things like histidine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, threonine, tryptophan, and valine. Whereas we cannot produce enough of arginine, methionine, and phenylalanine, which means that we have to consume those 21 amino acids within the diet. Of the 21 amino acids, we need to make sure that we get the essential amino acids from the diet because we cannot get them otherwise. Beyond making sure we get our essential amino acids, we actually need to make sure that we get somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.8 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass per day of protein. This will make sure we have enough nitrogen in our, in our body to allow for normal protein synthesis to make all of the proteins that our cells need in order to maintain our normal overall health. It has been noted that a range of 1.2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body mass may be necessary for those who are highly active, as those who are highly active tend to have excessive tissue damage that, need to, that needs to be repaired. That same range can be very important for those who are following a lower caloric diet or restricting nutrients, 
such as reduction of carbohydrates, in order to lose weight. Recently, I've noted that there is no additional benefit seen in either gaining or maintaining lean body mass at intakes higher than 2.5 grams per kilogram of body mass accompanying exercise. In addition, the additive benefit that is seen with higher range of protein consumption with exercise is seen more as an energetic benefit than it is as a tissue growth benefit. And that only happens if resistance exercise, if weight training is at very low intensity or if exercise is performed utilizing an endurance exercise, jogging, running, walking, what is usually referred to as aerobics or cardio. And we look at the endurance side of it, it happens regardless of the level of exercise intensity. When we are trying to reduce body mass by restricting how much food we're eating, increasing protein consumption to at least 1.8 grams per kilogram of body mass seems to have the greatest benefit if we're attempting to maintain fat-free mass, lean body mass, during the weight loss with the range given of 1.85 to 2.25 being the most effective. If we have ever increasing amounts of exercise or physical activity, you need to make sure that your overall protein intake will go towards the higher end of the 2.2 grams per kilogram body mass range. But what we have to remember is that we do not need to go beyond that range in order to see benefits from exercise. And most of the benefits from exercise come from the exercise itself and not from the additional protein in the diet. When we discuss types of proteins, there's another thing that we have to look at here. And when we talk about the types of protein, we're generally talking about the chemical structures of the amino acids within the protein based off of the quality of the protein, not necessarily the quantity of the protein. Quality of protein is related to having protein sources that will provide what's usually referred to as the complete protein. And that is the protein is able to provide all of the essential and non-essential amino acids that I need for my metabolism. Along with the completeness of the protein, the quality of the protein source will also be able to provide my six to 20 grams of branch chain amino acids that are necessary for metabolic processes per day, as well as the six grams of creatine that I need to replace the creatine that is used throughout the day. And that becomes even more important with increased level of activity as the six grams may become 10 to 12 grams of creatine that I need to replace each day. Understanding these ranges is important as it allows me to make the best choices for what kinds of proteins to consume. Yet there is some confusion about how getting the appropriate amount of proteins is essential especially when getting the complete proteins, especially for someone who might be following a vegetarian diet. 
we can get complete proteins strictly from our animal protein sources. However, if I'm following a plant-rich vegetarian or vegan diet, I need to make sure that I am pairing up protein sources from the plants that will provide complete proteins. As some staple foods that we consume tend to miss one or more of the essential amino acids that can impact responses that I see within my body based off of metabolism necessary to repair the body following any activities that take place throughout the, throughout the day. This is especially important as a lot of the staples foods that are consumed by vegetarians and vegans may have poor quality proteins due to limited amounts of lysine. Consuming complete proteins does not mean needing to eat animal protein sources, but needing to pair foods throughout the day to ensure that the protein that I'm getting has high enough quality to meet the demands for essential branch chain amino acids, as well as for creatine. Some have stipulated that the incomplete proteins need to be eaten together, while others have indicated as long as you're consuming these throughout the normal day, you'll get enough of the essential amino acids. If we look at what the research says, it's not necessarily the need to pair the sources together, but making sure that we have all of the sources necessary to get complete quality proteins throughout the day. And you can use kind of a general rule of thumb in this where if I'm going to consume incomplete protein sources, trying to make sure that I'm pairing up my incomplete protein sources within 30 minutes of each other so that I'm able to get the complete protein is a good rule of thumb to follow. Lipids is the next one that we're going to take a look at here. And so what's going to be a good diet when it looks at lipids? And this is where we get a, a bit of misinformation about the need for lipids within the diet. And just like proteins, we have to be careful when we talk about lipids, fats, as the type of fat will determine the use of fat and the impact that fat has on overall health. And this is where we break up into three big categories and then into subcategories within that. There are essential fats that we need to have, essential fatty acids. And these are the omega-3 and the omega-6 unsaturated fats. And then there are fats that are going to be the monounsaturated, one unsaturated fat, the polyunsaturated, more than one unsaturated fat, the saturated fats, and then we have a class of fats known as trans fats. The trans fats are different than the partially hydrated fats. Trans fats can occur both naturally as well as quote unquote artificial based off of chemistry that's done within the food processing. And there is a whole discussion on fats and fat properties that you can go back to to look at as it relates to what is a trans fat and what is a saturated fat and what is an unsaturated fat. 
when we look at these types of fats, we tend to think of them as being bad or good. Saturated fats are typically seen as being quote-unquote bad dietary fats. But the problem is that they're essential for metabolic process. Unsaturated fats are typically seen as being good dietary fats. And the difference between the saturated fat and the unsaturated fat in terms of good and bad is based off of how those fats get metabolized later on following consumption of the, of the food we are eating. One of the ways to look at some of these fats in terms of the good versus the bad is looking at the essential fats, the omega-3s and the omega-6s. The omega-3 and the omega-6s are the fats that are labeled on a lot of our food products as sometimes, quote-unquote, heart-healthy or, quote-unquote, brain-healthy fats. And they're labeled that way based off of changes that they have in liver and in immune cell metabolism that will impact inflammation taking place within the body and circulating levels of the quote-unquote bad cholesterol, the low-density cholesterol. And these changes will limit vascular inflammation and development of atherosclerosis hardening of the arteries, but will also reduce the amount of reactive oxidative species and overall level of oxidative stress. Now, when we look at how much we should be consuming of these fats, there are a couple of guidelines that are generally given. The American Heart Association has stipulated that if we look at fat consumption based off of calories per day, we should not consume more than 30% of our total calories per day from fats. However, there have been examinations based off of low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets that have indicated that we can increase fat consumption And the increase of fat consumption will lead to increased use of fat within metabolic processes as long as you reduce carbohydrate intake proportionally. And they've indicated that it is safe to consume high amounts of fat beyond the 30% that the American Heart Association has stipulated. If we look at our mass recommendations, our mass recommendations, very similar to what we see with carbohydrates and with proteins, will have a range of 0.8 to 1.0 grams of total fats per day per kilogram of body mass. The range is further broken down based off of the type of fat that we have, saturated, unsaturated, or those trans fats. It's been stipulated that the maximum amount of saturated fat we should consume in a day is about 20 grams. And the maximum amount of trans fats that we should consume per day is about two grams. The remainder of the fat that we should consume in a day should be made up of the unsaturated fats, polyunsaturated and monounsaturated. 
For the omega-3s, we should consume about three grams per day. For the omega-6s, we, we should consume somewhere between 12 and 17 grams per day. Those are the principal macronutrients that is discussed when we start looking at macronutrient balancing within diets if we look at it strictly off of the caloric balance. But we have other nutrient needs. The other nutrient needs are our vitamin and mineral needs. And our vitamin and mineral needs are given based off of recommended dosing due to an effect of what might occur if we lack a specific vitamin or a specific mineral on our overall metabolism. There are secondary recommendations that can be given to ensure that we are not overconsuming vitamins and minerals. One mineral that is typically overconsumed is sodium. Sodium is especially overconsumed with increased consumption of prepared foods or the consumption of sports drinks or electrolyte drinks that a lot of us will drink on a daily basis, as we've been told throughout a number of advertisements, that we need them for performance. And we need them in order to rehydrate our body following exercise. While that might be true, consuming salt within our normal diet, sodium within our normal diet, plus the amount of sodium that we consume within the electrolyte or within the sports drinks may put us beyond the maximum amount of sodium we should be consuming in a day. Overconsumption of sodium will lead to overhydration of the body. Too much volume of blood and high blood pressure due to the sodium in the body which is where the low sodium, sometimes referred to as the DASH diet, comes into play in terms of quote unquote good diets. And that's particularly for people who are hypertensive, people who have high blood pressure. But just because I have high blood pressure doesn't mean I need to completely eliminate sodium from my diet because I do need some sodium in order to help me with maintaining normal hydration particularly if I'm excessively active. There has also been an increase in the consumption of antioxidant vitamins, in particular vitamin D and vitamin C. Well beyond the benefit that would come from consuming within the normal ranges. With excessive consumption of vitamin D and vitamin C, instead of having antioxidant responses, I can end up increasing the amount of oxidative stress that a cell might see, which is where we have to be careful with overconsuming vitamin C and vitamin D as most of the supplements that we might take if we happen to have a cold would have extra amounts of those two vitamins. But at the same time, if we're consuming things such as vegetables and fruits, particularly citrus fruits, we will get large amounts of vitamin C. Vitamin D is also added to a lot of the dairy products that we consume, as vitamin D has been shown to have 
a impact on bone metabolism, even though the overall strength of the bone is not related directly to the amount of vitamin D or the amount of calcium that I have in my diet, but to the amount of of load, the amount of resistance that my bone has to maintain throughout a day. Which takes us to a question within this good diet idea. Is there some formula that I can follow to ensure that my good diet is a quote unquote balanced diet? If we look at any of the advertisements that comes about with food stuff, it's always about balanced diet, balanced diet, balanced diet. But what's the balanced diet? Is there some sort of secret formula I can follow? And the problem is that there's not really a secret formula because remember, we're talking about an individually tailored plan of eating to allow me to have optimal performance. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we have a balanced ratio for the macronutrients within each meal to what I need on a daily basis. Meaning that we're going to be consuming over the entire day based off of per kilogram of body mass, at least 2.5 to 3.5 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body mass, 0.8 to 1.0 grams of lipids per kilogram of body mass, and 0.8 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. If we were to think about this in terms of our caloric balance, which is how a lot of the advertisements come about in terms of a balanced diet and the ratios that they talk about, 40 to 50% of calories based off of recommendations should come from carbohydrates. 20 to 30% should come from fats. 20 to 30% should come from proteins. Those are the recommendations. But for the percentages of calories, there is more speculation than empirical evidence to show that these are the most ideal ratios. There is even less empirical evidence to the balance within the individual meal as relates to the proportionality of my proteins to my lipids to my carbohydrates or to my starches and to my fibers. Most of the discussion that we see is based off of the ratio of carbohydrates to lipids to proteins based off of the energy demands rather than the nutrient demands that we need on a daily basis. More importantly, most speculation and advice for the balanced diet is based on what happens if nutrients are being eliminated more than if nutrients are being consumed and consumed well beyond maximal levels. Even within the dietary guidelines that have been put forth by multiple medical organizations, where most of the recommendations are based more on a disease model of what happens if stuff is missing or if stuff is being consumed in excess, then on a health model for an ideal metabolic response to foods being consumed and to my overall health. With all of this in mind, how can I determine the proportionality and develop a good diet based off of ratios and the ratios I need within the meals throughout the day?
in order to do this, we have to look at a few factors and answer a few questions. And these are a few factors and a few questions that we need to sit and ponder and develop what is going to be my individually tailored diet based off of my individual needs. And that is, what is my nutrient balance point going to be? What nutrients do I need in order to maintain the tissues that I am actively using throughout the day? What nutrient balance do I need in order to meet the fuel needs that I do throughout a day? How many meals do I plan on eating throughout the day? What is my dietary pattern going to be? If we go back to all of the diets that I listed out earlier, I didn't talk about things like intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, or diet-mimicking fasting, or fasting-mimicking dieting, depending upon how you want to look at that. that. That is the pattern of food consumption throughout the day. And that's going to determine how am I going to break up my meals? When I look at how many meals will I be eating in a day, I can know how many grams I should eat in a day of each of the nutrients, of each of the vitamins, of all of the minerals. And I can simply divide that evenly within all of the meals throughout the day. If I do that, then I know that I'm going to have a balanced diet. I need to determine what is the quality of the nutrients in the foods that I'm eating. Am I eating complete protein sources in particular? This is very important if I'm going to consume just plant sources for my proteins. If I'm going to just consume plant proteins, then I need to look at ways to make sure that I get all of the amino acids so that I have complete protein sources so that I'm not missing any of the essential amino acids from my diet. Once again, remember, this is an individually tailored diet which means I have to think about what foods do I have allergies to? What foods do I select not to consume? Remember, a diet is not about what I restrict, but what I consume. And so if I'm consuming a large amount of one substance or a large type of one food, then I need to make sure that most of my good diet is based off of that type of food. Because we need it for normal digestive health and normal health in general because of the influence that our microbiome within our intestines have to our overall health, am I getting enough fiber in my diet? Am I getting the correct proportion of soluble and insoluble fiber in my diet? We've got to remember that fiber is essential. It's necessary to be consumed. And when we consume it, we want to make sure that we consume it in, in the foods that we eat more than in beverages that might contain fiber within it. And this is where we want to make sure that we're consuming things like leafy vegetables, whole grains, as opposed to drinking the fiber substitutes. The fiber substitutes might be a benefit, but it's not the essential part of a good diet. This is where when we talk about good diets and making sure that we're consuming everything, we want to make sure that our plates, each plate for each meal, contains a rainbow of colors. 
that rainbow of colors is going to ensure that I'm eating and consuming within each meal all of the macronutrients, the carbohydrates, the lipids, the proteins, the nucleic acids, along with all of the vitamins and minerals that are necessary for me to maintain my body mass, maintain my body composition, repair what needs to get repaired, meet my energy demands, be able to have optimal performance and optimal health. A lot of what we talked about today was previously covered in a few of the other talks, and you can get more information by going to those other talks, one on the amount of protein and how much protein I should have in a day, one on carbohydrates and how much carbohydrate I should have in a day, one on lipids and the impact that various lipids have on our overall health and metabolism. I hope you got some good information from this talk. Please stay tuned for more talks and more information about diet, metabolism, and overall health, as well as physiology and overall health 